Corinthians chapter 10. So turn on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Chapters 10 and 11 are where um, Paul really addresses and focuses on the accusations that were being made against him and the cheap talk that people were making about him. Whenever you're doing something for the Lord, there are always going to be people who find it in their interest to attack what you're doing. Because it's a lot easier to rip on somebody else for the way they're doing what they're doing than it is to go out there and actually do something yourself. And so there are always a lot more critics than there are people with fruitful ministries. And that was certainly the case there in Corinth. And so Paul knew about this stuff. He was being told about it probably by um, Titus and Timothy and others. And so he just wanted to address it head on. But he dealt with the great concerns that he had. But now here in chapter 10 and then on into chapter 11 as well, he focuses more and more on the um, cheap talk that was going on there in Corinth about him. And some of the things that they were saying were things like, you know, Paul writes, you know, really strong stuff, but then when he comes to you, he's kind of shy and reserved, not really impressive. He's short. He's ugly. Um, you know, and, and he's not as slick as some of the other preachers that we've seen. And, and so these are the sorts of things that, that were being said. And they were also telling the people, you know, Paul says he's going to come here and then he doesn't. And his heart isn't really for you. He's out trying to build a kingdom by going other places. And, and all these sorts of things um, were accusations that they were making against Paul. And so here in chapter 10, he begins by kind of explaining um, why he had the temperament in approaching them that he did, even though he knew that in meekness, many people would confuse meekness with weakness. Because there are always people out there who come on really strong. And Paul wasn't generally doing that when he was there. He talked about over in 1 Corinthians how when he came there, it was, it was in a soft and subtle and unimpressive way, really. And, and so then when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to Corinth, and he really nailed them for some glaring errors that were going on there, then critics were saying, this is the same Paul who just you know, sat there and taught and wasn't all that impressive. And now he's getting bold in what he writes. Um, and it is easier to be bold in what you write than it is in what you say. Often what you write, um, when someone writes, and it's one of the problems of email and blogs and things like that, is that when someone writes something, you can't see their expression. You can't read the feedback and therefore make adjustments and clarifications. And so sometimes... Writing is a difficult, um, uh, certainly a difficult medium of communication. It has huge advantages, though, because when you write, you, have, you do have a chance to um, think about what you're saying and kind of rewrite it and edit it. Um, hopefully you do that. Um, 
when you write also, sometimes, yes, you do have a boldness that you might not have personally if somebody's intimidating you in your presence. But, boy, that can be a good thing. Because, you know, if you want to hear it really straight, that's usually not going to happen when you're having a nice, friendly conversation with someone. And I always appreciate when people write to me, and, and sometimes they're kind of strong, and sometimes I know they don't mean it quite the way it comes off, but at least they're putting it out there on the table. They're, they have a, a, a kind of courage that, that they might not have in personal communication because of the intimidation factor. And so Paul's dealing with a lot of those kinds of things. And he says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. That's exactly what they were accusing Paul of. Oh, you know, when he's here, he's wimpy. And then when he's not here, he's really talking tough. And so Paul acknowledges that. But he also said, what I'm trying to do, my, my meekness is not weakness. My meekness is I'm trying to imitate the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, who even he himself, Jesus, said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. And so someone who is always strong and always a blowhard and always just coming on really aggressive, that sells really well in the media, but Jesus, the truth is, Jesus wouldn't sell in our modern media. He wasn't that type of a person. People were amazed by the authority that he had, but not by the way that he came across. And so Paul is kind of subtly taking a jab at the people who are taking jabs at him and suggesting, you probably wouldn't have been impressed by Jesus either. You know, when Isaiah talked about Jesus in the 53rd chapter, and he said, you know, who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He has grown up before him as a tender plant and a root out of the dry ground. And he had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We would have been embarrassed by him. The notion that Jesus, and there are people who, who say that Jesus, because he was a perfect man, must have been the perfect physical specimen. And, you know, they see him as being just this Greek god kind of a person physically. And, well, I'm sure he wasn't wimpy because he spent much of his life working in construction. That just doesn't go really well together. Yet, you know, he, he wasn't, he was perfect. But in our minds, perfection means tall and lean and muscular and with a certain kind of voice and a certain kind of posture and a certain charisma. But God's standards of perfection are a whole lot different than ours are. You get this by reading the Bible. Look how many times the Bible talks about being fat as a good thing. You know, to us, it's the worst thing in the world. Um, but he, Jesus was, was a plain guy. 
He, as Gail Irwin talks about, if, if he was the one who was so distinctive, why did Judas have to point him out when they came to arrest him? After all the time he had been around, he just looked like another guy. And, and, so, and so Paul is kind of leaning on that and saying, yeah, you know, you guys are starting to really follow some very physically imposing and impressive teachers, but the one who started all of this, he described himself as meek and lowly. He's described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So don't be so quick to create him in your image. You were created in his image. And so, but Paul's kind of explaining the method to his method. <laughs> and he says, yeah, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And in presence I am lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He said, look, I'm trying to talk nicely to you. I'm trying to appeal to the better parts of your nature. And I'm, and I'm trying to just shoot straight with you without screaming at you and barking at you. Because he said, I don't want to have to get there and then have to really be upset with you. If you listen to what I'm calmly telling you, then we will have a joyous reunion when I come there. But he said, there are some there who, you know, they're th thinking that I'm not bold. I'm going to show them how bold I am. And in this passage, he, he makes quite a few not so veiled threats about how he was going to deal with those who were saying things about him and, and um, taking cheap shots at him. But he said, for you guys, I don't want to have to be that way. Don't make me get angry with you in order for you to listen. And, you know, this is true of anyone in any position of responsibility and leadership. You don't want to have to get upset in order to get people to do what they need to do. You want people who faithfully want to follow the leading and the advice of someone who they're supposed to be in submission to. You don't want to have to say something 20 times and then really raise your voice before they'll listen. And often, if that's your methodology, you train people that it only means something when your veins are popping out. That if you just say it, it really doesn't mean anything. It's always frustrating when you say things and seem to get no reaction from people. And they push you to the point where you need to grab them by the throat in order to get them to just understand that when you say something, you actually mean it. But Paul was saying, I'm trying to not have to do that with you. If there are some that I need to show my strength to, I'll do that when the time comes. But I'm speaking to you in meekness because I want to appeal to your heart the same way that, that Jesus would. And so then he says, I'm going to be bold toward some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. There were some people there who were attacking him and criticizing him who their basic perspective is one of carnality, is one of flesh. And so they were criticizing everything based on fleshly criteria. They were looking at that which was supposed to be spiritual, but defining it and evaluating it based on 
fleshly standards. And I think we need to be careful when we look at what God's doing and people that God is using, we need to be really careful not to look at it from a fleshly perspective. But we really need to see the Spirit and that which God is doing rather than for us to either love someone or hate them based on what they're like in the flesh. Because as he goes on to say, what, what we're doing when you come to the gospel, it is not about the flesh. So he says, they think we walk according to the flesh. But verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are people, but we do not war according to the flesh. And you remember when we were in Ephesians and Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The battle that we are fighting is not a fleshly battle, and therefore we will not fight that battle using fleshly weapons, no matter what people who are in the flesh want to say about it. We walk in the flesh, we don't war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That which God intends for us to use in order to get his work done, it isn't the carnal methods. And he contrasts carnality with might. Not You expect our weapons aren't carnal, but they're spiritual. But he has kind of a play on words and says, they aren't carnal, but they're mighty. And he says two things at once that carnal weapons are, are weak and that mighty weapons are spiritual ones. And so he said, we are fighting in a different battle and we're not going to stoop to the level of carnal means in order to attempt to win that battle. I'm not going to stoop to their level. I don't owe them an explanation based on what they are saying about me I'm going to fight this battle the way God wants me to fight every battle, and that is in that mighty area of spiritual warfare. And, and that's where I'm going to take this, and that's how I do things, and that's how I want to, to have my ministry function. And so Paul is setting this, laying it down right away. And I, I think it's important for us when we get in battles to ask ourselves, who are we really battling against? And what are we using to fight that battle? And often we will be using carnal methods to try to fight a spiritual battle. Pastor Chuck says that one of the things that caused him to leave the denomination he grew up in was that they got up there and they were having contests and all these things. And he went and talked to one of the guys and one of the leaders and said, why are we using all these carnal methods? And the guy said, well, the people are carnal. And so if you want to reach carnal people, you need to reach them with carnal methods. And Chuck says at that time he had just about had enough and decided that's not the way I want to operate. And yet our, our world constantly challenges us to do just that. They constantly look for carnal ways of getting God's, God's work done. And quite often, and, and there, are, there are people who make a good living traveling around from church to church as consultants, 
pointing out how the church can improve. And almost always, their emphasis is on your bulletin needs to look better, you need to slick up, you know, get some better seats that are more comfortable, uh, the pastor shouldn't sit on a stool, make them stand up, give them a fancy pulpit with maybe a, you know, a little higher class of clothes. Um, you need to hire you know, big professional bands and have major multimedia stuff, push out the amateurs and the volunteers and bring in the professionals, and then you'll see God work. And Paul, I mean, and you know, the funny thing is, all that stuff works. The fancier you make your church, the more people you'll have in it. Um, but is that really what it's all about? And is that really a win? Is that really a win? If we announce that we're giving stuff away free, a bunch of people would come. But as I heard someone say one time, if you give away free flashlights this Sunday, then next week the church across the street is going to be giving away free batteries. And <laughs> there they go. And, and so it's important to remember what battle we're actually fighting and it is not about flesh. It's not about body count. It's not about just trying to impress people. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff, by the way. There's a, I, I am, I'm, in, I'm in favor of putting out our best effort for the Lord, but not as a way of doing battle. All that stuff is window dressing. What really matters is that we are doing battle in the spiritual realm the way that God calls us to. And so Paul is bringing them into that discussion here and talks about pulling down strongholds. There are these spiritual fortresses, you know, built up by powers of demons and, and satanic methodology, and these things would rise themselves up as as our enemies in different ways. And every one of us in our lives find strongholds. Every time a trial comes along, every time someone says something about you that's hurtful, every battle that you're fighting in your life right now is some sort of stronghold that the devil wants to use to defeat you. Now, the devil generally can only attack us in the areas that he knows something about. And so, Often his attack, though seeming to be spiritual, is really anti-spiritual and it's really quite fleshly. And we often want to fight those battles in our flesh. But Paul says we need to tear down those strongholds, but we need to make sure we're doing it with mighty weapons. And he says in verse 5, casting down arguments. That's the word um, logizomai. Uh, it's a word that means reasoning your thought processes that you go through. Um, the King James, I think, says imaginations, but it's arguments isn't too bad. Um, reasonings. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He says there are going to be rabbit trails that our mind takes us on. Because when Satan attacks us, although he does it th often through 
consequences that are earthly, yet what really hurts is, is what that does to your head. So he'll bring along a tempting situation. He'll cause you to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and temptation comes about, but that's only the start of it. It's where your mind takes it as you consider this and as you think about it. Satan can cause things to be disrupted in your place of business. But it's not always about that, because you can always find another place of business. But where the real battle happens is when he gets in your head about that. And so you begin to doubt God. Things aren't going well at work, and now you're wondering whether you really know God. You're wondering whether God's really working. Did he really lead me here? Is he really going to provide help for me And you begin to try to solve things on your own. Your mind begins to race. You lie in bed at night, fighting, battling in your own thoughts. And that becomes a stronghold. That becomes built up. Now for Paul, probably the strongholds that he's referring to are these things that are being said about him and what that does in messing with his mind. In him... Because, you know, he he writes this letter and he deals with some of these accusations, but you know he had a whole lot more to say than what he actually wrote down. This is an edited letter, I'm sure. And, And so here he's even, you know, you get upset with somebody and you think of all these things that you want to say, usually after they're not there anymore, so you can't, and usually that's a good thing. But your mind just begins to race and these your logic just runs wild on you. And Paul said, I want to take those thoughts captive. I want to put a lid on Satan getting in my head. I want to put a lid on where my mind leads me if I just let it go. Um, Thinking is good, but thinking isn't always good. Sometimes thinking can be very destructive and very depressing. And so Paul said he takes those thoughts captive. The idea is, and the word for taking it captive is literally putting a spear to someone and saying, you're coming with me. Paul was very interested and and exhorting about us being responsible for what we think and how we think. Now, I can't do anything about what thought comes into my head. And the fact that a thought comes into your mind, the fact that you have an idea, that's not a sin. But where are you going to go with that? What are you going to do with it? And you and I have the capacity to take those thoughts captive, as he says, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, We take Christ, we take Jesus, and we put him into the problem, into the formula. And those old bracelets that people used to wear, you know, what would Jesus do? Not bad. Because that's the way that we take a thought captive. We go, here's what I'm thinking. This person said this about me, and it's really hurt my feelings, and I'm wounded, and I'm starting to feel marginalized and devalued, and, I'm, and then I go, wait a minute. Jesus, what do you say about this? What have you promised me? 
What is, does this plan supersede your plan or does your plan supersede this plan? And so it's always making sure that when your mind starts to go somewhere, when your mind starts to race, that you bring the Lord into it as soon in the process as you possibly can. And you keep him in the center of it. And if you don't do that, your mind will destroy you. You, the mind is an amazing thing. I'm fascinated by how the brain works. I'm fascinated by little connections that it can make. I'm amazed that I can hear a song that I haven't heard for 30 years, and it'll just instantly take me back to another time and another place, and I'll start to remember all sorts of things in connection with it. Or I'll run into someone, and they'll say, hey, remember me? I'm so-and-so, and I'm... Ah, let's see. And then I remember who they are, and I remember all kind of, like, I had this whole life with them. There was so, you know, and yet somehow it got filed away, and boy, the brain is amazing. But it's so easy to mess somebody up in their brain by planting a seed. And that's why we need to be careful for what we say to others, because a little thing that we can say can start a whole avalanche of garbage in somebody's head. And if they don't know how to take it captive, if they don't know how to put Jesus in there, then it can destroy them. Many of us have spent years with our minds racing about something that Jesus has the solution to. Really doesn't matter that much. It wasn't that big of a deal, but somehow we let it become a big deal and Paul's just saying right off the bat, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so I'm not getting into a big argument with you about this. And when I come there, I'm not going to hunt these people down and win an argument against them. I've already won the argument because I'm fine. In my head, I have taken these thoughts captive. I'm not letting them destroy me. Now, this is a process because you can see leaking out over the next couple chapters that there are real hurts, that Paul was certainly affected by what people were saying. But he's saying, I am in the process of dealing with this in a way that doesn't require me to settle things with them in order for this to be dealt with. And it would be really good for us when a, when a thought comes into our head, where however it's planted there, if we could take it captive without ever having to say anything, resolve anything, get even with anyone, straighten them out, correct them. Why do we need to do that? Why do we waste our time defending ourselves all the time? Now, Paul goes on and he defends himself, but he says, even as he does it, he says, "This is I'm talking like a fool. I don't need to do this, but if you want to play that game, here, I'll show you I can do it in order to show you that it's not important to do, that I don't need to do this. And so he says, um, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, when you take obedience to Christ and put that as the controlling factor in your head, then disobedience will be punished by being banished from you, by being removed. You'll never, you'll never be able to destroy 
all of your enemies. But you don't have to keep fighting them either. You can discount them. Obedience is the best counter to disobedience. Righteousness is the best response to criticism. And, and so Paul just says, disobedience will take care of itself when your obedience is fulfilled. And for each of us, we will not have complete obedience until we learn to take our thoughts captive, until we learn to factor Jesus into the equation in everything that we're struggling with. That's how, that's how we win. Now he says, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. He says, Now these guys are claiming to be Christians, and they're acting like Jesus is on their side. And he goes, But, but wait a minute. He's on my side too. I have Jesus in the same way that you do. And, and so he is not going to side with us. He isn't going to, you know, Joshua, before he went into battle against Jericho, the angel of the Lord showed up and he said, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And the angel of the Lord essentially said, I'm on my side. I don't pick sides among you guys. And, and that's really the truth. And so what Paul is saying is, remember, okay, if Christ is on your side, I don't know about that, but I know he's on my side too. I know that I belong to him. I am his child. This should make us be really cautious and careful about picking fights with people who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord. A lot of people become even frustrated with me because I, because I don't take a stand against other things that are going on in other churches that, I, that, frankly, I see things that happen in other churches I think are ridiculous. But you won't, I hope you don't see me even taking veiled shots at them in a way that kind of implies that I think we're better than other churches or that I look down on them or I'm judging them. I want to be really careful to not do that because you know the bible tells us don't judge another man's servant what they're doing what they're called to it's not my problem it's not my job to correct them and the truth is they are probably looking down on us sometimes in the same way that we might look down on them but we all belong to jesus and so we just don't need to go there it's, it's counterproductive. It runs the risk of us being against the Lord himself. And I just don't want to raise a hand against anyone who just might be someone who God is working in their life. And in some cases, God's working in their life in an amazing way, in a, in a stunning way. And so they may be wrong about certain things. I may see certain blind spots that they don't see, but they're not asking me for my help. And I just don't see a point in us as a church sitting around talking about what other people are doing. We need to focus on what we can do and who God is calling us to be. And so Paul just kind of says that, look, if, if they're Christ, I'm Christ too. I, 
I'm not a non-Christian. Is that what is that what you're really trying to say? That I'm not even a Christian? Now some people are so bold to point out, you know, there are some people that think Billy Graham's not a Christian. Um, that's ridiculous. But Paul is just putting it in that on that kind of a basis and saying, like, I'm Christ's. You have a problem with what I'm doing? Talk to him. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. He said, I could brag if you want me to because I do have authority. God has done things through me. God has called me to certain things. But he said, what God called me to, he gave me that spiritual authority for the purpose of edification, building up, not for destruction. So as soon as I use whatever I have from God in a way that tears someone else down, instead of lifts someone up, then I am misusing the authority that God has given me. Now, we all have amazing authority as Christians. We have his word. We have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He wants to be upon us and moving us and and leading and guiding us that's an amazing amount of authority but he gave it all that authority to us for one reason edification and so if if you use the bible to try to tear people down you're misusing the authority that god has given you use the bible to build people up use what god is doing in your life to encourage others and Lift them up. Even if if you disagree with them, there are ways in which you can build them up. Most people who are messing up, most people who are chasing, you know, rabbit trails and things like that, most people who become distracted from, from the simplicity of the gospel got that way because they were really frustrated and insecure. And so they're running really hard trying to prove themselves, trying to do enough so that they can finally feel God's satisfaction and pleasure. And so what they need, although sometimes it doesn't seem like that, some people seem so prideful that they need to be knocked down a peg or two, even the most proud people that you know are that way because they need to be edified, they need to be built up. And I know that sounds contradictory, but that's biblical, Everyone that you know needs to be edified. No one that you know needs to be torn down or destroyed. If they need to be knocked down a peg or two, don't worry about it. Life does that to you. And living a prideful life in and of itself will end up bringing someone onto their face. So you don't need to do that. Everything that God has given us is for the purpose of edification, and and Paul wanted to make that clear. I shall not be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you by letters. And he's kind of, he's messing with them because he says, he, he says, they say for his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So he goes, I hope this doesn't terrify you too much because I'm this awful, terrifying person, as people say. But he said, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. 
He said, one thing I'll promise you, what I say to you now, what I write to you now, that's really me. I'm being sincere. I'm not a backstabber. I'm not going to say one thing in your presence and something else in your absence. I know when I show up, these guys are going to be kissing up to me, but I'm going to be saying the same thing when I'm there that I'm saying now. And sometimes it may be strong. Most of the time, it's going to be with a meek and a lowly spirit, but I'm going to be saying the same thing both places. Four, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. He said, I am not going to get into a you know, contest with who's bigger and who's better. I'm not going to grade myself on the curve. Um, later, he says, if you want to play that game, we could do it. <laughs> but he says, that's not where I'm coming from. I, I don't define who I am, and I don't let people categorize me based on who they want to compare me to. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And it's never wise to compare yourself based on how other people are, what they are. It's never wise to be in a competition with people or for churches against other churches. That's just unwise. God has different gifts that he gives different people. And also, there are different times of your life when you'll find great fruitfulness and productivity and other times when it seems like nothing's happening in your life. And that's just the way God works. He has purposes behind all of it. And so if you're always tripping out on where you are in relationship to where everyone else is, you're just going to be chasing your tail. And that's not wise to do. It's not, you know, parents, when you have more than one kid, you can't, you can, a lot of people do this, but it's horrible, like have one kid set the standard and then the other kids need to live up to it because everyone's different. Some people are late bloomers. And, you know, you, you hate this thing of people who have kids that are the same age comparing notes to see, you know, which kid is walking for, Oh, he, he's not potty trained yet? My boy was potty trained three months ago. He, you know, I remember when we had our first child, William, a friend of mine, a pastor at Calvary, John Hilton, um, had a son at the right about the same time. And we used to have baby races. We would, we would stand William and, and, and John Jr. up against the wall because they could stand like this. And then both dads would get out about five feet and go, okay, go. Okay, come here, come here. And the kids would take like two steps and boom, fall on their faces. And it was like, okay, measure who got the furthest. And it was fun. And the kids enjoyed it. But ultimately, there are some people who never get over that. And they're like in their 70s, and they're still comparing themselves with other people. And, uh, you know, finding some sort of satisfaction that, you know, I'm tougher than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you. And he says, that's just not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. He said, I'm not going to worry about comparing to anybody else. All I want to know is, how am I doing with what God has given me to do? 
how am I doing within my little circle? Um, and I, I think I referred to this a little bit Sunday, but there's this huge circle of things that we care about. And there's, out of all the stuff we care about, there's a small circle of things that are actually our responsibility. And you're going to kill yourself if you can't figure out the difference. Because if you're scrambling around trying to worry about and deal with everything in your circle of concern, well, that's more than you can handle. And usually you'll end up neglecting your circle of responsibility because you're chasing around in this big circle of concern. The circle of care is the circle of prayer. Everything you care about that isn't your problem, pray about it and you're done. Now get busy doing what God has called you to do. And Paul said, I'm plenty busy in the circle that God has called me to. And he said, you guys are in that circle. You're a part of that sphere. And so that's why I'm dealing with you. A sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves. <coughs> Boy, that's a mouthful. Overextending ourselves is something that we habitually do so often. Worrying about things that aren't our concern, aren't our problem. He said, we're not doing that as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. You are a part of my ministry. And so I'm not getting out of place to come and share with you because you're people who I even led to Christ. And you grew under my ministry. And just because I'm not there doesn't mean that I have no responsibility over you anymore. I do. And that's why I'm talking to you. And of course, it's a backhanded shot at the people who had moved in and tried to take over, as so many people do, go to a ministry and try to siphon people off into, you know, make their own ministry. And it's really easy building a ministry off of transfer growth and just, you know, going and, and picking and choosing and pulling people away. And that's what church splits are generally, is that somebody just decides, you know, I could go off and start a church, or I see a lot of people here that probably go with me. Let's do it that way. And Paul said, that's what they're doing. I, I haven't done that. He said, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. He said, I'm not worried about other people's labor. And again, this is a good reminder to not be critical of other ministries. It's not your problem. It's not your problem what's happening at the church you used to go to. You know, you left. So let that be somebody else's problem and you settle in where God has called you and, and, and grow there. And he says, I want our sphere to grow as you grow. I'm not just trying to get more people. Paul saw growth of the church as being people in the church growing. And he said, that's what I want to see happen. We're not in a contest. But he said, uh, enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. He said, what I want to do is, I mean, I had a special time with you and your special people to me, but I want your ministry to expand to people who don't know Christ. I want you to have outreach 
And I want to go to, there's a missions board that called itself Regions Beyond, and they took it from this um, verse, even though actually Regions is not in the original. You'll see it's in italics. But the idea is, hey, I think Regions Beyond states it well. Paul said, I want you to grow, not by fighting these little battles within. I want you to grow spiritually, and let's get ourselves busy going other places and preaching the gospel and seeing other people's lives touched for Jesus Christ. To me, I mean, I I get encouraged when a lot of people show up for church, and honestly, sometimes I get discouraged when it's like, wow, where is everybody? And then I wait about 10 minutes and everybody's here. They're just late. But um, what I'm really excited about is when God calls somebody to go somewhere else and they're still a part of our body, but God's using them and people are coming to the Lord and being ministered to in other places. That's the kind of church growth that Paul cared about. Um, It was that outreach. It was that missions that he devoted his life to and wanted them to catch that same vision for it. And that was an awful lot of what his talk in the previous chapter about, about finances was about, is making sure that you expand by, you know, not just by growing bigger and fatter in and of yourself, but expanding by foreign acquisitions, by going and, and taking the gospel to people who haven't heard. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. He goes, doesn't matter if you think you're doing a good job. Ultimately, God's going to be the judge. I don't really care what I think about me, and I don't care that much about what you think of me. In the final analysis, what I'm listening for is that voice of God because I want to hear him say, well done, when the whole thing's over. And if that happens, I don't care if there are critics. I don't care if there are people who get mad and leave. I don't care if there are people who don't like the way I did it. I have to answer to the Lord, and and you do too, about what God has called you to do. And it's just a distraction to get into these little, um, I have a really good term for it, but I'm just not going to use it, Uh, (laughs) these contests (laughs) that, that don't accomplish anything, that just leave everyone soiled. And so... He says it's what, who God commends that's really, that really matters. Chapter 11, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. He goes, hang in here, but I'm going to get real silly here for a minute. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I'm really concerned for you. Jealous in a good way. Jealous for you. Not jealous of you. But I want the best for you. I want you to be blessed. For I have betrothed you to one husband. I introduced you to Jesus Christ, your husband. I I led you to come to understand what a relationship with him was all about. I saw you grow more and more in love with him. I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He knew that he was responsible for what happened in the lives of the people he ministered to and what kind of condition they would be in when they would meet the Lord. And, and so he said, I take very seriously my responsibility to present you to God, to prepare you for heaven, to help you to understand grace, 
to help you to live in the power of the gospel. But he said, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's always about the mind. That's why Paul said in Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you'd present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The mind is where it all starts. And we saw earlier here in chapter 10 where these attacks, these strongholds are in the mind, but so are the victories. It's all about learning a new way of thinking. It's all about approaching things with a new understanding. It's why we put such an emphasis on on Bible teaching, because that's where it starts. And it's not all about Bible teaching. We need to apply it. We need to to put it into practice. But (coughs) Paul is saying, your minds can be corrupted, and when they are, it's because they get complicated. They get corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I love that phrase, the simplicity that is in Christ. The gospel is simple. It's deep. I I still learn more about God's grace. I still learn more about the gospel. Every day, almost every day, every week for sure, I come to some new awareness in a different way. And yet, it all comes back to that simplicity. It all comes back to what I'm I'm really doing is learning to not add to it. Learning to keep the crud out of the way. And anyone who makes the gospel sound complicated is getting beyond the simplicity of the gospel and it'll mess with your mind. A lot of people who really love theology fall into this practice of making it so complicated that it loses its beauty and its simplicity, and you lose your focus. And that's why some of the brightest people in the church spend all their time arguing with other really bright people in the church, and why someone who's not that bright who's just going around telling people, you know, Jesus loves you? And they go, really? Yeah, here, let me lead you in a prayer. They're the ones that are getting stuff done, and all these brainiacs are wasting their time. And and maybe it's good that all the brainy people are, are having stupid theological arguments because it keeps them away from people out there. And I really don't even want non-Christians to be exposed to some of this some of this malarkey that is these deep enhancements of all these things. Really, it's kind of good. If you want to get away from the simplicity of the gospel, it's kind of good that the first thing you'll do is you'll pull away from all non-Christians because it's just better if they don't see that. I am so embarrassed, and I know that the Lord is, by a huge amount of things that are done in His name, of people who profess to be representing him and it's why i just like a broken record say stick with the gospel stick with god's grace 
Stop adding a bunch of stuff to it. It is not the gospel and my political views. It's not the gospel and this theological perspective. It's not the gospel and my approach to church. It's not the gospel and anything. It's the gospel. It's not complicated. Paul, who was brilliant, said to the Philippian jailer when he said, what do I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Now, a whole lot of people go, yeah, but I'm sure he said a bunch of other stuff too. I'm sure he explained to him all about the Trinity and all about the resurrection and the nature of heaven and when Christ was going to return and all that stuff. If he did, he didn't think it was important enough to mention it. God help us that we would not in our minds be corrupted away from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Over in Galatians chapter 1, he's a little stronger. And he says, even if an angel comes, if you hear somebody comes and preaches another gospel and another Jesus, let them be accursed. Let them be damned, he says. Paul felt really strongly about this. And so this applies to someone who says, you need to have faith in Jesus and in our particular church. You need to accept Jesus Christ, but you also need to go through these particular religious rituals. Or you need to believe what the Bible says and what our book says that explains the Bible. And Paul would have no patience with people who make it complicated. And, you know, no one would ever become a Mormon, for instance, by reading the Bible, by reading everything that the Bible says about the gospel. Now, I love Mormons, and I, and I love every chance I have to talk to some of them because, I, because in a lot of ways they believe so much good stuff, but the simplicity isn't there because they've complicated it. And I'm not angry with them. I'm, my heart's broken for them. The same thing goes for anyone in any church that is complicating things, that is making it, well, it's this, but it's also this. Now, it's interesting to me that an awful lot of the people today who are talking about those who come preaching another Jesus, they are people who themselves have so complicated Christianity, and they're accusing everyone of preaching another Jesus unless you preach him exactly the way they preach him. They are the equivalent to these people who are attacking Paul making it so complicated that you have to believe, in order to be preaching a real Jesus, you have to believe just a ream of material. You have to believe and have the right position on everything. And if you believe that the rapture is in the middle of the tribulation instead of before the tribulation, you're preaching another Jesus. <laughs> if you believe that 
It's okay for a Christian to go to a psychologist. You're preaching another Jesus. You're not a, you're not a Christian at all. There are some of these people, I don't think there are, they think there are any Christians out there except them and a handful of their friends, and usually they turn on each other. But Paul's thing was, no, come on, let's, let's agree together the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let's stop complicating it. And if somebody adds a bunch of things to it, it's another thing completely. And he says, he goes on, verse 5, he says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. (laughs) He's getting frustrated thinking about these guys. And he goes, understand this, there's nobody who's more of an apostle than I am. Okay? Ooh. He says, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Now, (laughs) the word untrained in speech is literally, the Greek word is the word idiot. (laughs) And and what it means at its root is private. And so probably what he was saying, certainly he certainly was trained in speech. And so I don't like the New King James translation for that. Um, but the idea is I have my own way of doing things. You may think I'm an idiot the way I speak, but I have my own reasoning. But, he said, I'm not stupid. I know what I'm talking about. I've received this message from Jesus Christ himself. I am not an idiot in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly, and I'm sorry if uh, idiot offends you, but that is the Greek word, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. You've seen what I've done. (coughs) Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? There were some people there in Corinth who were even criticizing Paul because he didn't make a a salary when he was preaching there in Corinth. He goes, you guys were so hard up that I humbled myself and and I didn't take take pay from you, although I had every right to. I didn't receive it. So is that working against me? He said, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. I was being paid by other churches because you guys weren't paying me. And Corinth was a very wealthy area. But, you know, Paul didn't make a big deal about it because he wanted them to get the message. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. Again, when when I was doing without, other guys from other churches came and helped me. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. He said, you know, nothing's going to stop me from telling you guys what the truth is. Achaia, as you remember, is the area below Macedonia where Corinth was in southern, southern Greece. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows. Of course I love you. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity 
to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. He goes, now I'm going to defend myself a little bit, but I'm doing it for your benefit. I, I can't let these guys just continue to deceive you. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. He says, these guys that are cheap-talking me, they're false apostles. They're the phonies. They're accusing me of being a phony. They're the phonies. And not only that, in their lies, in their attacks, they're children of the devil. And you know, the devil knows how to come off like an angel of light. He knows how to take on an appearance of something that he isn't. And he said, so naturally his kids can do that. The idea is everything in the ministry is not as it appears to be. There are some guys that may look like they have it together more than I do. But Paul says, they don't. They're conning you. They're fooling you, and you're falling for it. And that's why I'm reminding you of who I am and how I've proven myself. Um, because these guys are out to fleece the flock. These guys are out to take advantage of you and to destroy you. And so we're going to play their game here just for a few minutes and, and let you see what they're about by reminding you of who I am. But they're phonies. And they're of the devil. Awkward way to end the study. Um, <laughs> but there's just no way I can get through the rest of the chapter. I thought I might. But it'll have to wait. And next uh, Wednesday is um, Thanksgiving Eve. So we'll be here, but we'll have a special Thanksgiving Eve service um, instead of doing our normal Bible study. So then we'll, after that, we'll be taking up... Uh, and finishing this chapter and moving on into chapter 12, which is one of the most incredible chapters in the whole Bible, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So looking forward to getting to that one, but first we'll get through, and I really love this chapter 11 as well. Now, as Paul's boasting lets us know everything he endured, um, and it's really pretty inspiring when you think about it too. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, thank you for giving us this passage of Scripture to remind us that things aren't always as they appear to be. And it also reminds us to worry about our own stuff and not to be out criticizing others and attacking others, not to be lifting our hands against your anointed, those that you have chosen to serve and represent you. So Lord, help us to learn from this. It's so easy for us to build ourselves up by tearing others down. But God, that's not our problem. That's not in our sphere of responsibility. And so God, help us to stay focused on our own issues, our own calling, our own ministries, and to release all the other stuff to those in whose sphere these things um, remain. Lord, help us to learn from all of these things that Paul is talking about and 
Help us to follow his example as being those who remain simple, those who stick with the simplicity that's in Christ, the gospel, the good news. Help us to be broken records on what matters. Give us a heart for the regions beyond. Give us a heart for growing and edifying each other here so that those arms can extend to others who who haven't heard. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this night. We thank you for allowing us to spend this time with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand and sing another song.